Take your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. We're returning to the book of Genesis after a few uh, weeks around Easter that we had. And we're actually going to wrap it up here in the next couple weeks. And then on April 30th, which is th- uh, two Sundays from today, uh, Danny's actually going to preach a message with an overview of the whole Bible. And he told me he's going to do that in a manageable amount of time. So uh, thumbs up for that. Um, but uh, you're not going to want to miss that. We're going to finish up Genesis uh, this week and next week. And we're going to finish with the life of Joseph. Uh, Genesis 37 through 50 tells his story. The, the second half of the book of Genesis is about kind of four guys, uh, starting with great-great-great-grandfather, I guess, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so we're in Genesis 37. Let's read a few verses. We'll pray and see what God has for us this morning. Genesis 37, starting in verse 1. Jacob, so he's the third guy in that line, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. So they were wanderers. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, that's another name for Jacob. Now Jacob loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. No baby of the family has ever been extra loved, have they? (laughs) Never. And he made him, this is famous, a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. It's a good start to life right there, isn't it? Let's pray and see what God has for us this morning. God, thank you for your word. Please help us to listen to what you have to say today to each of us. There's not a person in this room to whom you are not speaking through your word and by your spirit this morning. All of us need to hear from you. And all of us are responsible for how we respond. So please give us tender hearts. Help us to be good soil for the seed of your word to land on and to grow, to change us, and to produce fruit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I told you we're in Genesis 37. Here's a quick overview of the book of Genesis, if you want to kind of have a feel for what's going on. In brackets are major events, and then you have people, right? Creation in the fall. Uh, We learn about the foundations of the world in Genesis 1 through 3. Then Adam's family, you could roughly say it. That's where uh, Cain kills Abel, and uh, then we learn a little bit more about the decline, I guess, within that first family. Then Noah and the flood. Then one chapter on the Tower of Babel and how the world is dispersed into many people and languages. And then this family that God chooses, not because they're incredible people. Abraham was not a perfect person. He was very flawed in lots of ways, but he was a man of faith. And we learn throughout the book of Genesis that the uh, currency in God's economy is not works. It is not the ambition of our lives to impress God in some way. You can't do it. And honestly, the harder you try, the more frustrated you'll become. But it is trusting God one day at a time and following him imperfectly as you do. And then the the real hero of the story, the ultimate actor, is God himself. And God, in his grace, works in people's lives and in his world. So we're learning about faith and grace, and that starts with Abraham and goes to his son Isaac. There's very little about Isaac uh, in the story. There's a pretty good section about Jacob, 
uh, that we are not going to cover. But if you want to think about Jacob, Jacob was a schemer. He always had an angle. He was always trying to figure out how to get some for himself. And uh, he grows increasingly frustrated along that journey, but God patiently walks with him. And uh, then Jacob's son, Joseph, that we're reading about today. And really, as you watch the life of Joseph, you experience something that we all experience about life, don't you? Life is unpredictable. Just when you think you got life figured out, what happens? Something changes, right? And you just never know when it's coming. I remember when we were uh, moving out west from Indiana, we drove across the country in December. That's really smart. And uh, we actually had kind of a tight time frame. I finished up at the church I was at in Indiana on a Sunday, and then we were going to drive Monday, Tuesday. I think it was two days out here. And I was supposed to start a job in Colorado on Wednesday. That was kind of the, the rhythm. Yeah, that was not smart. Um, but that was what we were doing. And I learned about western snowstorms. They close highways. I never experienced that before. So we drove from Indiana to Manhattan, Kansas, home of Kansas State University. And uh, we stopped there for the night, and then it started snowing. I'm like, okay, that's fine. I'm in, I was in an Outback, Subaru Outback. I was like, we drive, no problem. I got up in the morning, and the people who owned uh, the bed and breakfast were staying was like, where are you going? To Colorado. They're like, have you seen the map? No. They're like, you're not going to Colorado. I was like, well, how do I get around it? They're like, you don't. (laughs) Welcome to Manhattan, Kansas. (laughs) And uh, so it was actually a neat kindness of God because we'd been running so hard that just actually to have to stop for a day was a good thing. And I went bowling, I think. I might have gone to a movie. We, it was just paid for one more night in the bed and breakfast. And then the highway crews got it cleared enough that we were able to go across. But But you realize very quickly in life, don't you, that there's very little control that you actually have. Life is unpredictable. And if we're honest, most of the time, the unpredictable things in life aren't good. True? I mean, you you ever been at a workplace when you got an email that said, hey, we need to have an emergency meeting on Friday afternoon? How many of you are like, great? Maybe we're getting promotions. Maybe we're getting bonuses. No one thinks that. You think, oh, this is bad. Am I getting laid off? Is, is the company going under? Will we have a company on Monday? Right, Friday afternoon meetings. I've never yet been in a class in school where the teacher started the lesson by going, before the lesson, we need to talk about something. And all the students went, oh, this is probably good. <laughs> or we need to stay after class. That's even worse to talk about something. And that's not just something that's in our heads. It's really true about life, isn't it? That when it's unpredictable, it's often bad. And when, when things are bad, we wonder, where is God? Just because I'm a pastor doesn't make me immune to those wonderings, those struggles. And in the life of Joseph, we have one of the best stories and illustrations, real life pictures in the Bible of God's explanation for what's going on when things are bad. And for Joseph, they're actually really bad. Things, bad things start in his younger years, but they really start to get rough during his teenage years and through about the time he's 30. So we're talking about just over a decade here. And look at the things that happened to Joseph in one decade. Number one, oh, Joseph's summary of his life we'd find in Genesis 50. And he says, uh, do not fear. He's talking to his brothers. This is at the end of his life. For I am, am I in the place of God. As for you, he says, you meant evil against me. That's the first decade we're going to look at. It is evil. It is bad. There's no getting around it. There's no sugarcoating it. It is terrible. 
He says, you meant it for evil, but God, this is him looking backwards, meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What does Joseph experience? Well, we just read Genesis 37, 1 through 4. Joseph grows up in a dysfunctional family. This family is a mess. Let me give you three specific ways this family is really a mess. Look at verse 2. Genesis 37, verse 2. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. Joseph and his brothers make up the 12 tribes of Israel. So we're talking about a number of brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament story, those aren't exactly Jacob's wives. Who are Jacob's wives? Leah and Rachel are Jacob's wives. There's actually a story there about how Jacob gets tricked, and he ends up marrying the sister he didn't want to marry. Then he has to work extra to marry the sister he wanted to marry. There you go. That probably made for an interesting home. And then in the culture of the day, uh, if you want to have more sons, you could give your like, most important servant to your husband to have four wives. He has four wives. Rachel, Leah, and their two servants, Bilhah and Zilpah. What kind of environment do you think that creates? I can help you. Not good. You can read in Genesis, I think it's 23, or 29, and 30, about the competition that existed between these moms. To have kids, to be the most important, to be favored, to be liked. It's just this constant culture of competition. Some of you had an older sister, and it felt like you had two moms. But they had four. And it wasn't good. By the way, God's design for marriage has always been simple and clear. One man, one woman for one lifetime. Unless anyone tell you Jesus wasn't clear on that, Jesus affirmed that very clearly. What did Moses say? One man, one woman, one lifetime. Anytime we as human beings try to color outside the lines, which we always do in lots of different ways, we make a mess. And so Joseph's family was a competitive culture that was a mess. Secondly, it was a family plagued by favoritism. Look at verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. Jacob had a favorite wife. He had a favorite son. Joseph was his favorite son. How does favoritism work out in a family? Now we're tempted by it, aren't we? And we're drawn to it. And sometimes there are children and parents that more naturally connect. But we need to guard ourselves against the kind of uh, picking and exclusion and, and being favorites of one to another. It creates problems. And we see that in verse 4, what happened in Joseph's family. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, by the way, siblings always see that. Parents, guard yourself. They hated him. How much did they hate him? They could not speak peacefully to him. A family with favoritism and a family filled with fighting. Sadly, this is not just the case in Joseph's family, is it? I remember as a young pastor working with a teenage boy named Jamie. And one day after something we had done with the teens, I dropped him off at his house, which was about a half mile from mine. And about a half hour later, I looked back out my front door and he was sitting on my porch crying. 16, 17-year-old boy. I walked out, I sat down on the porch next to him and I said, Jamie, what's going on? He goes, my parents are fighting again. 
they're yelling at each other, and I'm stuck in the middle trying to break up another fight. Colleen and I were at a couple's, you know, sort of seminar sort of thing, and uh, they were kind of talking to you about what kind of family you grew up in. I don't remember all the categories. I remember one of them was healthy, one of them was, you know, abusive, uh, performance-based. There were a number of families. We all took the test, and uh, Colleen and I actually uh, both come from good families, healthy families. And I remember the shock on the person who ran the seminar. He's like, you're lying. I'm like, lying? What do you mean? He goes, you both, he like quizzed us. He's stunned. He was surprised that that kind of family, those families, he knew they existed, but they're a small part of the reality. And the fact that two people from healthy families married each other was just like, he was blowing his mind. Families can be hard, can't they? As much as we try to paint something across the surface of how amazing they are, they can have a lot of problems. And Joseph grew up in a family that was a mess. We read a book about a year ago called When Home Hurts. It was very helpful. But I remember being struck by the idea that God designed home to be a place of love and safety and care and reprieve. But how often it doesn't end up like that. And that was the home that Joseph grew up in. But it gets worse. Not only did he grow up in a dysfunctional home, he experienced a traumatic event. Look at Genesis 37, just down a few verses to verse 18. His brothers hate him so much. It says it four times in those next few verses. They hated him, they hated him, they hated him even more. They hated him so much that they saw an opportunity. Look at verse 18. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They come up with a plot to kill him. One of the brothers says, don't do that. Reuben does in verse 21. He had a plan to kind of rescue Joseph. But verse 23 says, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother? And conceal his blood. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Joseph experiences an angry conspiracy and death threats. You wonder what Joseph thought while he was thrown into the pit. He's roughed up, thrown into that holding cell, and then he's essentially trafficked, isn't he? His brothers sell him across the world. And in their cold and callous hearts, while they're figuring out what to do, they eat, hang out, talk some more, and then they cover it all up and lie to their father. And in that instant, what changes for Joseph? Everything changes, doesn't it? What does he lose? His family, his language, his friends, his life changes. And sometimes that happens, doesn't it? Life changes in a moment. I didn't realize this until recently, but if you know Tony Finau, the, uh, he's a golfer from Utah. He's pretty famous. I actually grew up in Rose Park. I saw a documentary on him, and uh, he grew up in Rose Park. None of his family golfed, but his dad decided they were going to learn to golf, so he set up some blankets in the garage. 
and they, he and his uh, teenage brother. Imagine the great idea of teenage boys hitting golf balls in a garage. And they just, they couldn't afford to go to the range, so they just hit golf balls in the garage. And you can actually go to Rose Park today and see the condo where they lived and a garage door full of dents in the door of golf ball, like dents coming this way of golf balls. And he grew up to be a world-class golfer. He's in the top 10 or 15 in the world, and he's, you know, done a, almost everything that, you know, an amazing golfer could do. But I didn't realize this until this year. Uh, Tony Finau's mom and sister were killed in a car accident about 10 or 15 years ago, and in a moment, life changed. Maybe it's a health diagnosis. Maybe it's a financial loss. Life changes, doesn't it? And sometimes it can be devastating. I'm certainly no expert on PTSD, but people who know it much better than I do talk about the lasting effects of trauma like that, and Joseph experienced that. But it didn't end there. (laughs) Turn to chapter 39. You say, we're gonna cover some ground. We are. We're almost there. He goes from a dysfunctional family to a traumatic event to a cruel injustice. Joseph lands in Egypt and he he serves God faithfully. He serves the person that he's working for, the person that buys him ultimately, a man named Potiphar, and God gives him success, so much success that Joseph is trusted with everything that Potiphar has and Joseph has to feel like things are getting better. You ever been there? Like we were starting to turn a corner and the light's starting to come on and and the door's open and things are getting better. And Joseph faithfully does what's right and God blesses him. This is actually a little section of the Bible that I've prayed the beginning of it that God would allow as I've been in the workplace. That the places where he puts me can prosper as I faithfully serve him there. And so Joseph starts to see things improve. But Potiphar's wife tempts him. It's a very famous story, and she wants him to be immoral with her. And verse 8 tells us he refuses, and it happens day after day, and he says no and no and no. How can I do this to the person that I serve, and how can I do this sin against God? Verse 11, but one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment and said, lie with me. But he left his garment with her and fled and got out of the house. By the way, there's good wisdom there if you get in in a compromising situation to run, whatever running looks like, a dangerous situation. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of the house and said to them, see, my husband, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. And he came to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment and fled. And she keeps telling that story to her husband in verse 19 says, and as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, a lie, his anger was kindled and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoner were, con- were confined and he was there in prison. Things go from slightly better back to much worse. And we're not talking about any deluxe prison. We're talking about a terrible place to spend your existence in a foreign country falsely accused. Think about the things that are mounting here. A a hard start in a family, a traumatic event, now a cruel injustice. But Joseph continues to faithfully serve God. None of us is simply a product of our environment or the things that have happened to us. And Joseph gets one more glimmer of light in chapter 40. As he's serving, these two prisoners come in 
And they have a dream, and Joseph interprets their dream, and he must think, I'm finally getting out of this hole. And this didn't happen really quickly. Look at chapter 40, verse 1. Sometime after this, sometime, sometime after Joseph was in prison, this cupbearer and this baker show up in the prison. And then it says, uh, they continued there at the end of verse 4, for some time in custody. None of this is happening fast. It's taking time. And so Joseph hears their dream. One is good. One guy's going to get prom- like back to his position. The other guy's actually not. He's going to be executed. So it's good news, bad news. But Joseph interprets his dream. And look at the end of chapter 40. He's still in prison. He's approaching 40 years old. He got sold at 17. Look at the end of chapter 40. Verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer, and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He brought these guys back from jail, whatever they had done. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. You say, why is that important? Look back at verse uh, 14. After Pharaoh, or Joseph interprets the, the dream for the cupbearer, he says this, Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. The last thing Joseph experiences in these hard days is that he's finally forgotten. And imagine the low point that he reaches here, can you? The famous author F. Scott Fitzgerald in his book, The Great Gatsby, says this, the loneliest moment in someone's life is when they are watching their whole world fall apart and all they can do is stare blankly. So what do you do? Maybe you move to Australia. Does that ring a bell for anyone? No, that's because you're too young. There was a famous book, this will age some of you, it was written 50 years ago, 1972, called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, no good, very bad day. <laughs> Joseph was having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad decade. And Alexander's response is that he'll just move to Australia. But then his mom tells him that there are bad days in Australia too. Can I tell you the good news of the bad days and the injustice and the hard families and the forgottenness that we experience in human life. Look back at Genesis 39, verse 21. Here's the good news. Joseph was never actually alone. Far from home, mistreated, left alone. I love this verse. There's actually a few verses like this in chapter 39 if you would read the whole chapter, but I just want to focus on one as we finish up this morning. And you'll actually see throughout the Bible this little phrase, but the Lord or but God how he intervenes. Look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. And what comes along when God is with you? Look at the next few phrases. And showed him. I was wondering, how did God show him? We don't have all the details. But God showed him steadfast love and gave him favor. That's another word for grace in the sight of the keeper 
of the prison. Is there any hope when life is bad and seems to only get worse? Really? Where is God? Can you catch the three little things that that verse says, or that God says to us in that verse? I am with you. I love you. I will help. A couple weeks ago, we walked through a pretty dark moment in our lives, probably the darkest that we've had as a couple, and we continue to walk through it. And I'll tell you something. As a pastor, I've been side by side with lots of people through lots of things. I've been in a lot of hospital rooms. I've been at gravesides. I've been in contentious and hard things. They never get easier, by the way. You never all of a sudden get things figured out. But I've been in them. One of the first experiences I had as a young pastor, I wasn't even a pastor, I was a a summer intern, was sitting with a family. The pastor was out of town and I was helping that summer, was sitting with a family that had just lost a baby. And I, I can tell you honestly, it was one of the most unprepared moments of my life. I remember hoping the whole time that someone would call me and say I didn't have to go. But they didn't. And I drove up to this house of this young couple. They were probably around 30 who had just found out they'd lost a baby. I remember having no clue what to say or how to help. But just being with them and praying with them and playing with their kids, I think that's the biggest thing I did that I can remember. But I'll tell you this about life, and you know this is true. It's one thing to be with someone or, or have hard things happen around you. Noah had a whole world that was a mess all around him. But it's a whole nother level, isn't it? It's an entirely different thing to walk that road yourself. It takes on a whole new significance and depth and it's different. And here's what I found to be so encouraging that you guys did as a church family and it actually just comes out of what God does right here. You know what people said? Hey, I want to let you know I'm here with you. Hey, we love you. Hey, if you need anything, we're here to help. And do you know what the God of the universe says to you this morning? When you walk through the bad and hard things of life, he says to you, I'm with you. By the way, when God says he's with you, that's really good. I mean, I can say I'm with someone, but I have limited resources, limited strength, limited knowledge. I, you know, if someone's like, great, you're with me. We have that hospital bill. Can you give us $25,000? I'd be like, oh, wrong guy. Why? Because human beings have limits. When the God of the universe says, I am with you, that's something. And isn't it interesting that the thing our minds ask when things are hard is, where is God? He's not gone. He's with us. And that means all his resources and all his strength and all his care and all of him, just like it was with Joseph, is with us. It doesn't make the bad thing go away. It doesn't make it less. It doesn't make it not matter. But he's with you and he loves you. Human love is so fickle, isn't it? It's so conditional. It ebbs and flows. We love so imperfectly. Husbands, God tells us one of our biggest jobs is to love our wives like Jesus loves the church. And I think every husband in this room would go, I I can grow there. 
but God's love, it's reliable, it's steadfast. That's the word that gets used all the time. And then God is at work. See, Joseph could look back decades later and go, you meant it for evil. But God, in the rear view, he could see this. But in the prison, I'm sure he wondered. And I wonder about you this morning. See, bad things and unpredictable things are a part of human life. And some of you, I know your story a little bit. Some of you, I know some things about your family as your pastor. Some of you, I don't know or don't know as well. Some of you have deep things that you wouldn't be comfortable sharing or aren't ready to share, and that's okay. But we can all cling to a great reality that if you know Jesus as your Savior, if you've put your trust in him, if you're walking by that faith we talked about, God is with you. And that's not just a pie-in-the-sky idea. It's a real truth. It's a real thing that our hearts so desperately need. God is with you. God loves you. And he's at work. You see, I can't see it now. You will. If not in this life, in the next. God is working. I guess I put that on the slide. There you go. Where is God when life is bad? Let's pray together. God, thank you for stories like the life of Joseph about real people with real problems, real pain, real frustration, real loneliness, real hurt. Thank you that you have not left us alone. And God, well, I don't know every situation in the room today. You do. You know the condition of each heart. You know the past, the present, and the future. And we confess this morning that it can be very hard to trust you, especially when we don't understand especially when things take detours that we're not prepared for and we don't expect. But God, help us not to run from you. Help us to run to you. Help us to run into your arms to know your care, to know your love, to know your grace, your help in times of need. You are a refuge and a strength, our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. And we thank you for that. We praise you for that this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.